Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 48, Preventing and Reversing Alzheimer's Disease. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio and welcome back if you're a loyal listener. Thanks for tuning in. It's Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith and we've got a hot topic uh, to talk about today, episode 48, uh, Alzheimer's disease. The thing that really uh, twigged my uh, curiosity around this podcast today um, was the part of the title that said reversing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be kind of a, a new twist on things for you, dear listener. So stay tuned. Things are going to get good. <laughs> uh, Michael, um, is this the opportunity where I start making forget me forgetful kind of jokes? Who, who are you? <laughs> can, can we do that sort of thing? Is that okay? Um, preventing and reversing Alzheimer's disease. Let's just dive right into that. Um, where do you want to start with it? I guess maybe defining what Alzheimer's really is? Sure. So... Um there's a lot of different classifications with respect to what we would call dementia and uh, our cognitive decline. And then we have full-blown Alzheimer's. So you could say it's a, on a spectrum of basic cognitive capacity. There are certain changes that we can measure uh, with respect to the actual structure of the brain um, that you could say are actually like, you know, that this is for sure a picture of what happens to the brain that is ex- exactly what we think is Alzheimer's. Problem is right now, half of people who actually are diagnosed and eventually die because of Alzheimer's disease don't have those exact changes in the brain. So we know there's a lot of things we can see, and then there's things that aren't always present. So when it comes to like the exact diagnostic imaging part of this, it's still a bit loose. But um, obviously when you're um, dealing with any individual who's going through, you know, what it starts off with what's called subjective cognitive decline, which is I keep forgetting where I forgot my keys. You know, and you start telling your family, oh, well, it must be getting the mad cow or, you know, the old timers thing. And then gra- gradually it kind of, you know. <laughs> Did you just say mad cow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so there, there's a TV show I used to watch when I had a TV. And one of the actors had Alzheimer's and he used to call it mad cow. So I just <laughs> have that in my head. Okay. Just so we're clear, we're not talking about mad <laughs> no, cow disease. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Comfortable moment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go on. And anyway, so you can see the... I guess in terms of subjective human experience, you can see uh, the changes that we, you know, describe as eventual dementia and then full-blown Alzheimer's. So uh, diagnostically, it's a little bit tricky with imaging, but we all see what happens to people as they dwindle away into, you know, nearly no memory of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I mean, I only know of Alzheimer's disease, I guess, through uh, stuff I may have seen on TV shows or on uh on the screen uh, through Hollywood. Um, how how pervasive is uh, Alzheimer's? Well, it brings up a quick funny story because I actually got into Alzheimer's research back in the year 2000. I was asked to speak at the, what's called the psychogeriatric conference for the province. Okay. And uh, they wanted someone who was coming from a Chinese medicine perspective to speak to it. Uh, so that's what I did. But I, obviously to go to that kind of a big conference with, you know, hundreds of doctors and stuff there, I wanted to really not look like an idiot. So I did all this crazy research on Alzheimer's. And the scariest part about Alzheimer's right now is that if we don't do something about um, 
minimalizing the number of people who go into this kind of kind of cognitive decline, uh, which is kind of the point of this episode in a way, if we don't rearrange the statistics on this within another 15 to 20 years, um, about 30% of our population is going to be dedicated to taking care of the number of people in our culture who actually now have Alzheimer's or severe dementia. 30%. Because it takes three people to take care of one Alzheimer's patient if you're doing eight-hour shifts and your only job is to take care of them. Okay, so maybe I don't know enough about Alzheimer's, but um, three shifts? Does it really take that many people to... Uh... Yeah, that's just like a, a, it's meant to be kind of like a yield sign kind of patchwork of statistics because uh, some people don't require that much care until they require a lot more care. And to say it's three people per person is probably um, very generous in the sense that it's probably more like six. Oh, wow. Because, you, you know, the doctor, you know, is going to have how many patients that they actually can see in a timely manner. And then how many nurses, how many social workers, uh, there's psychiatrists, there's family members involved, there's uh, all the people who are busy, you know, uh, developing treatment strategies or, you know, better beds for people to spend years in. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's basically the thing that I came across researching that, I guess, almost 20 years ago was, oh my God, if we don't do something about this, the number of people that are going to be um, as, as an element of our culture, just committed to taking care of all these people who can't take care of themselves 20 years ago was already astounding. And, and here we are not, not obviously in a much better place statistically, hmm. or just closer to that deadline of if, you know, all of the baby boomers today, when they hit 80 years old in like 20 years, if, if they're all going to have dementia, that's like the biggest population yeah, sure. of patients you could imagine uh, with any condition. And I mean, that, that's why it's uh, such a big deal. Well, is it, uh, is it that prevalent? I mean, are, are people susceptible to Alzheimer's because of, I don't know, the way that they uh, eat or the way that they think? I mean, what's, how do, how do I say that in a different way? Um, should we be that scared as a society of getting Alzheimer's because of the way we actually live our, our lives? Um, hells yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to be a little bit funny there because what I wanted to say would, would have been much more, I don't know. Forceful? Forceful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly, and it's not that I ever would, would ever want to go out of my way to make people apprehensive or afraid. I just want people to take a moment and recognize that the way we live now, and who knows, even with EMF, I'm not really a proponent either way of whether or not we have any medical evidence that there's an exact link between EMF and Alzheimer's or autism or anything like that. But we can definitely say statistically populations that are around a hell of a lot more Wi-Fi do worse than, than better. But there are so many things about the way we live today that are pushing us towards dementia and Alzheimer's that, yes, please, if scared is the only way that it's going to get you off your butt, then start with scared. But what I would really encourage people to be more, I don't know, authentically would be be proactive. I mean, I think we could make up any story throughout any part of human history and say, oh yeah, this is this tribe and they lived in this place. And there was always this one thing that was the hardest part for those people to live. And they figured out the strategies that they figured out to adapt to that environment and to have a really cool culture and have a special dance for that special thing that everybody had to do to not die stupidly. Hmm. Today, <laughs> 2018, it's Alzheimer's. Like if you want a pet project, 
in your life to guide your health because all of the decisions you would make to prevent Alzheimer's are going to be all the decisions you would make to prevent cancer, to prevent uh, obesity, heart disease, diabetes. I mean, they're all kind of in the same uh, boat. Actually, in fact, recently people started calling Alzheimer's diabetes type 3 or brain diabetes. Oh, wow. Well, okay, so maybe I don't follow that much in the mainstream media, but uh, just the fact that we're talking about this as something to actually prevent and reverse, to me, is a bit of a shock. I mean, I don't really, uh, I mean, my parents are in their 80s, uh, late 80s, and, um, you know, he, my dad remembers things the same way a, a stereotypical 80-year-old guy would. Oh, what? Well, where did I put it? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just part of who he is. That's not necessarily Alzheimer's. So... Um, the fact that it's uh, a threat is kind of what I hear you say is something a bit of a bit of a shock. Uh, yeah, I mean, statistically, and we'll get into the you know exact statistics around likelihood of actually you know having the condition when we get there. But um, yeah, it's hard to say. Like, should we all be worried right now that I myself am going to get this absolutely like in the next ten years? That's not so much the point uh, for me. The, the point is, okay, we're not paying attention to something. And it's going to bite us in the butt hmm. and it's going to get really, really expensive and overwhelming for a while. I just don't want it to be as bad as we can imagine it to be, right? Because if we don't do anything, it's going to be as bad as we can, probably even worse than we can imagine it to be. But if we can grab this by the horns and say, oh yeah, this, this is, I mean, it was like when AIDS became a thing in the eighties, everyone suddenly got somehow magically more responsible in the bedroom. Yeah, sure. Right. So here we are looking at this other potential, I don't know epidemic um it's going to creep up on us it's it's just the same thing as well can we be more responsible about the fact that this is a looming concern and again all of the factors that you know predict the possibility of a person transitioning towards dementia and alzheimer's are all the same little gas pedals or problems in lifestyle and health and other things that cause all these other diseases you know again diabetes cancer heart disease so it's just another opportunity to say yeah well Let's, let's not, let's not just wait and see how bad it gets. Mm -hmm. Cause, cause that's where a lot of people are at. Well, you know, if I, if I really start screwing my, you know, my stuff up, then I'll take this more seriously, but maybe I'm invincible. Yeah, sure. Well, and I, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that it's actually, um, uh, I guess many facets to the same sort of thing, you know, the, uh, diseases of affluence that we have here in uh, the Western world, I think, um, present themselves in a, a number of different ways. And if this is just yet another one, it might just be the, uh, the smack to the forehead that really <laughs> gets people to wake up. I think in a way, just because of how Alzheimer's actually progresses over time, you know, and where it actually leaves us at, at the end of it all, I think it's really the kind of granddaddy, you know, disease of affluence, because you really have to be wealthy enough and, um, wealthy is probably the wrong word, um, have access to whatever you want, good or bad, for so much of your life that the erosive nature of those choices will eventually just, you know, digest your brain. But mm. obviously you have to live in your, you know, 70s and 80s for most people to get it, get it that seriously. So maybe this is going to come off a bit philosophical, but meh, that's kind of a part of this thing we're doing here. I think that just because of how Alzheimer's operates, it, it's like really the last kind of like, I don't know, message from the universe going, are you guys going to take this seriously or not? Because hmm. there is a part of each of us, and I, I, I know this is a part of myself, I know it's a part of 
pretty much everyone, everyone I've ever really gotten to know, there is a part of us that's kind of like a teenager, you know, that's like, well, you know, what can I get away with? You know, how many more years can I keep eating pop tarts for breakfast and pretending it's going to not hurt me? Or, you know, we have that in our, in our nature a little bit. So I think Alzheimer's is really kind of the big dashboard like that in the universe, just saying, yeah, come on kids. There's some things you don't want to be irresponsible about. Mm-hmm. And if, if the statistics are going in the direction that they seem to be going, we're going to be in some trouble because it's not, it's not something you can reverse when you're really, really sick. It's something you can reverse once you realize, oh, maybe I'm going to start getting sick. Hmm. Yeah. When you talk about um, sort of waking up to the idea that this is actually an issue, um, it just makes me think of, I don't think I thought about death or dying uh, in my 20s or my 30s or my 40s. You know, and I'm uh, this close, <laughs> you know, like just like a, a few inches away from being 50. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. That's a new idea. <laughs> I mean, it's been there the whole time. All of a sudden somebody just shined a light on it. That's all. Um, and, and I just want to jump in quickly with one thing, I guess, to balance out the mood of the conversation. Sure. So I would have just did an interview with... Uh, a mentor of mine, his name's Reed Davis. He's the founder of something called Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We talked about a few episodes about, uh, and maybe I'll actually put that interview up on the Fusion Health page for people to check out because he's a really interesting guy and he, he's got lots to say. But one of the things we got into right at the beginning of our conversation was, in his opinion, and I think he's in his mid to late sixties. Um, in his opinion. Uh, medically, whatever your health is at about 45, you should be able to maintain until you're 80. Hmm. Like, like all day, every day, like, obviously you're going to you know, maybe lose a couple of inches in height and maybe get a bit wrinkly or something. But, uh, in terms of cognitive function, in terms of overall capacity for, you know, just booting around doing whatever you want to do every day, you should be at 80 able to keep up with somebody who's 45. Hmm. If you're, you know, not, I don't know, passively waiting to see how bad it can get. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know a few folks in their 80s uh, who um, certainly shine up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you say that. So uh, we're, we're sort of talking about, I guess, the severity of what the disease is. Um, do you want to talk more about the, the nuts and bolts of it? I mean, um, I don't know that I would actually recognize somebody who actually has Alzheimer's. So are there certain things like that show up on a regular basis for everyone, or does it show up differently? Uh, well, there's a whole progression, and I can get into that. In, in a bit, but, uh, when a person actually has full blown Alzheimer's, they're probably going to be in a wheelchair hmm. and not probably have the best use for language. Okay. You know, but that, that's when it's that far. Right. So what I'll do here is I'm just going to shift the screen over a bit and, uh, well, we'll see because technology being our teacher, <laughs> Yeah. I'm just going to give people a chance to look at, um, a couple of things you don't need to obviously watch the video to hear what I'm saying, but this just helps me kind of like keep my mind on point. So when you're actually looking specifically at what Alzheimer's is, the, the kind of the first thing you want to have in, in your mind is it's both what, what is called degenerative and progressive, right? So degeneration basically just means things are going to, you know, wither away, but progressive means that it's, it's got a very specific goal in mind in in the sense of where degeneration happens, Mm -hmm. you know, so it can get more, uh, I don't know. It's like, you could say in in a certain sense, it kind of accelerates, uh, as it goes. So there's a few different kinds, which I'll talk to, uh, in a moment. 
um, we can see what are called amyloid plaque uh, formations in some people. And then there's other people who we see these what we call tau proteins. But again, there's people who actually have Alzheimer's who don't have those very specific markers. So it's hard to say, oh yeah, it's, it's absolutely 100% this or that. There's a, a clinician, he's got a book out called, I think it's uh, The End of Alzheimer's, and he's been one of the world's leading researchers on dementia for, for a long time, and his last name starts with a B for some reason, I can't remember it. Ha ha ha, there's a joke in there. Um, but he has this really, really great way of, of describing what's going on, and he says, just, you know, if you imagine your brain is a mattress, and above the mattress is your roof, <clears throat> and there's a whole bunch of holes in the roof, Right? And he says there's 36 specific metabolic kind of uh, measurable kinds of breakdown that can happen. So his, his, his image is just imagine the mattress and the roof and that all those holes are plugged with corks. Hmm. And depending on your genetics, your lifestyle, your age, uh, I guess how much you've done to your brain with things like alcohol or you know sugar and stuff like that, then that's going to basically pop open those, uh, those little corks. And now you have a hole basically raining down all your mattress, making it, you know, old and moldy or whatever. So he, he basically walks through each of those 36 things with people and says, if you can do something about each of those things, uh, you're going to have to have the least problem with this. Hmm. So it kind of simplifies it in a way. Sure. Um, in terms of the progression that gets into some pretty, I don't know, technical medical detail, but I think anyone can appreciate that you're going to go from, I forgot my keys to I'm walking around in my underwear downtown because I don't seem to remember that clothes are essential. And then eventually you're, you're not even remembering who you are so much. Quick, funny story though. Uh, I did have an Alzheimer's patient, um, in my, well, I have lots of Alzheimer's patients, but I had one come in and I always ask when we're doing acupuncture that one of the relatives stays in the room because you never know what people are going to do. <laughs> So this woman was getting her acupuncture and her daughter was in the room and I was in another room with somebody and my receptionist had gone to the washroom or something. And then the daughter had gotten out of the treatment room and gone to the washroom as well. And then I had come back into the front of the clinic and my receptionist wandered back into the reception area. And then the daughter walked in the same way. And I was like, that's kind of weird that, you know, those oh. people were at the other end of the building. Anyway, then I go back into the room and there's no one in the room. Oh, wow. So my receptionist had to run down the street and there was this old lady in her underwear and a bra with needles all over her, you know, back of her head and her shoulders and stuff, just walking down the street. Oh, wow. So yeah, anyway, just a little funny Alzheimer's stories that we get to look at. Yeah, that's kind of, I don't know if that's funny or not. <laughs> well, I guess a little distressing maybe. Like just maybe wasn't funny, funny, but it was kind of like, well, this is one of those, one of those things, more of a slapstick moment of just like, oh man, where did my patient go? Yeah, sure. So quickly, I'm going to walk through a, a really unique perspective on Alzheimer's. And again, this is from the, the same uh, clinician. I'll just call him Dr. B. And the thing I like about this is that for whatever reason, he came up with these cool kind of metaphoric descriptions of different kinds of Alzheimer's and they sound almost like Chinese medicine diagnoses. So I just have a little, you know, happy dance just at the idea that, you know, the, the most badass Alzheimer's specialist decided to nickname all of his subcategories, almost like Chinese medicine. So sure. A happy moment. So when you're looking at Alzheimer's, the first thing I would encourage anyone to image, I guess, is that, um, your, if your brain, especially the back of your brain was a grape, 
what we're looking at is a series of processes that are going to turn that grape into relatively a raisin. Hmm. And because all of those processes are more or less mapped out now and more understood, if you can reverse all those processes, you can take a raisin and turn it back into a grape to hmm. some degree. Obviously it depends how far it is. So just as I get into this, as people are listening, try not to go, oh no, oh no, oh no, go, oh, that's more specific and helpful at reversing this process. Okay. Because some of these things can sound, I don't know, doom and gloom or something. <laughs> of course. So we have what's called the hot type of Alzheimer's and it's primarily going to be driven by inflammation. And, uh, I think we can all appreciate that if you wanted to take an anti-inflammatory for your brain, you'd take something like fish oil because your brain is made of fats. And if it has the right kind of anti-inflammatory fats, it's going to have less inflammation. However, what happens if you have chronic inflammation in your brain? It's going to use up all your fatty acids. Hmm. Right. So again, that's just to give people that sense of, you know, so what inflammation, well, inflammation needs anti-inflammatories and your brain is an anti-inflammatory until it turns into a raisin and the, then it's <laughs> a barbecued raisin. <laughs> so, especially in the, in the, what we call that hot type. So another one we would call a cold type, which is, you know, just to balance things out. And, um, it has more to do with, um, basically a lack of deep nutritional structural elements that actually make all your neurotransmitters and, uh, um, your pathways happy, happy and doing their job, you know, and this could be something as simple as just uh, low vitamin D levels over years and years and years, or not enough uh, fat in your diet or certain hormonal imbalances that can mess up your, um, just the way the brain actually organizes itself structurally. So uh, classically in Chinese medicine, I think we would call that more of a yin deficiency sort mm -hmm. of you know quality of things. But then we have what's called a sweet type, which is can usually um, considered to be a combination of both hot and cold in the sense that you're, uh, I mean, sweet type kind of implies that it's being uh, run by excessive, if not toxic amounts of glucose. And again, Glucose very, very bad, especially for your brain in the long run. Yep. So if you have a person whose diet is really high in, um, well, nutrient poor foods that are high in carbohydrate or glucose, uh, what you're going to be looking at is that combination of malnutrition and chronic inflammation. Cause the more, uh, high sugar diets you have, the more obese you get and the more that adipose tissue flips off what are called cytokines of inflammation. So it, it does create this vicious cycle between, you know, what's going on in the brain and what's going on around your belly button, you know, or around your waist. And then we have what's called a vile or a toxic type. And this would be, uh, obviously run by anything that would be considered a direct toxin to your brain. And, um, uh, one of the most common examples of that actually would be the mycotoxins from something like Lyme disease or, um, black mold, which we've talked about, uh, you know, previously in the show. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is not only is it, you know, going to produce all that inflammation, the actual toxins themselves that produce the inflammation are damaging the tissue of the brain and your nervous, uh, your nerves, uh, membrane as well. So we can just see something that's just in there, you know, in terms of grapes turning into raisins, you know, going like, Oh, that's a really bad combination. And I would say almost everyone alive in the modern world is, is trending towards the sweet type just in, in terms of their lifestyle. So if you had that, you know, pressure of, you know, standard American diet lifestyle kind of thing, plus you got, say, uh, you know, a mold exposure or Lyme disease, then, I mean, that, that's when you want to really start, I wouldn't say worrying, but getting really good at protecting your noggin. Grape, mm -hmm. grape, grape, no raisins. <laughs> yeah. So then we have what people would call a pale 
type or a vascular type. And, and this is sort of a, a trickier one to make sense of because what's really going on is a lack of proper um, perfusion of the blood uh, through the entire structure of the brain. And that, that's a really complicated arena in terms of physiology because we already have a blood-brain barrier that's uh, meant to keep certain things out. Um, but the actual vasculature of the brain itself can be limited uh, or too brittle or uh, not supported in a way. And uh, yeah, like I said, that, that's one of the harder ones to make sense of because, you know, basically all you can tell people is, well, you're just not getting enough blood into your brain. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that are a part of that. It's It would probably be its own show if we were to geek out that much on something. Sure. Uh, and last one is what we call the dazed type. Uh, and this is usually because of post-concussive syndrome. Because uh, anytime you have a concussion that causes what are called the glial cells in your brain to kind of pretend that they're little airbags and they swell up to keep your brain from sloshing around. But unfortunately, that also comes with chronic inflammation and, and some deterioration uh, in the brain. So just saying there's that to be aware of the a couple of other details I did want to bring in um, well maybe I'll just go to this quick thing so when you're thinking about what you know again with the grape turning into raisin the things that are going to make that happen the most in life are stress chronic inflammation which could be from all kinds of things in, in the sense of how your, your immune system can get uh, overconfident let's say mm -hmm. And then any kind of high carbohydrate, high sugar uh, diet lifestyle, because again, you know, it's not a joke that we call Alzheimer's diabetes type three, because high insulin, high sugar actually changes the way your body creates scar tissue uh, in a very unique way. That's very uh, bad, you know, in, in the direction of how Alzheimer's actually works. Alcohol, alcohol, one, one of the most guaranteed ways to give yourself Alzheimer's disease. Uh, if you're pretty committed to that, because on I think oh, there'd be at least nine different levels uh, of, of interaction of what alcohol does throughout the entire system of your body um, with respect to how it would actually impact the brain towards Alzheimer's. So not, not, not a good way to go. Obviously, if you're going to get into uh, harder drugs, um, opiates, things like that, opiates, I think, are actually the worst thing for your brain <clears throat> of basically anything that we could pop into our mouth. Uh, that's also really complicated to get into, um, and I think we would need a chalkboard because it, it gets into some real fiddly bits. Uh, obviously, malnutrition in general, bad for everything, bad for your brain. Uh, dehydration, a huge problem. And I bring this up um, as well because of sort of a Chinese medicine theme around things. But uh, from a Chinese medicine point of view, one of the worst things in the long term for the structure and function of your brain is just being lonely, spending too much time by yourself. Interesting. And is that something that uh, um, Western medicine uh, agrees with or would have something to say about? Uh, I, well, Western medicine, I think the only place where that conversation would come up, and I just saw some research on this a couple of months ago, um, and maybe I'll just preface, preface it by saying it's not an accident that people love to sleep together. Hmm. And, I mean, we can have a tongue-in-cheek moment about sex, but I'm just saying... You know, just imagine how, you know, how much we're drawn to that. Because this research I was looking at basically was saying that um, because of what's called uh, heart-torus entrainment, that there's a way that you bio biomagnetically can help self-correct brains when they're close to each other while you're sleeping. Interesting. So 
that's the closest medical research that I've got that actually says being close to people is good for your brain. <laughs> anyway, there is just one thing I wanted to go into um, while well, I still have the, the screen switched over here uh, to just talk about the actual numbers uh, with respect to genetics and statistics because now that we have genetic testing in, in the sense of you know diagnostic medicine, uh, you could get tested for a gene that we call the APOE4 or APOE4, uh, 3 and 4 gene. Um, so you're going to get either an APOE3 or 4 gene from your mom and your dad. Okay. So if you got a 3 from both mom and dad, that means you have um, about a 9% chance statistically of developing Alzheimer's yourself. Hmm. And that's about as low as it gets. Right. So it's 10% for everybody. Right. Basically. Uh, if you have a three from your mom and uh, a four from your dad or vice versa, then you're actually going to have 30% chance of getting Alzheimer's because it's the APOE4 gene that tells us your probability as far as we can tell right now of actually, you know, developing dementia uh, towards Alzheimer's. So if you're a person, again, that has one APOE4, that gives you a 30% chance of developing Alzheimer's. And keep in mind, these statistics are based on passive people who have no idea how much you can do to take care of yourself, hmm. right? So this all, all of these, when you look at medical statistics, you just want to think of, um, well. A guy know. standing on the corner with the sign that says the end is near. Okay. <laughs> I, I was trying to find a polite way of saying, you know, <laughs> people who are basically stuck on low income uh, situations where you can't really control your, your, your lifestyle or your diet or your medicine or other sure. supplements. Right. Uh, so those, those are where I would say when, when you're, if you're listening to this go, Oh yeah. So statistics that we see in medicine are usually around the people who have the least resourcefulness. Well, the, where I thought you were going with that was, uh, statistics are just that they're just numbers. They're not necessarily a uh, life sentence. God, no. I mean, I mean, but to say that just basically pisses off everybody who actually understands and understands statistics because they're very, very powerful. Sure. So to just sort of flick them off the, the, the table as a, an annoying crumb isn't going to help people. But keep in mind that statistics are based on the worst case scenario. And usually it's people who can't make a lot of options or choices because mm -hmm. of they, they don't know what to do or they can't change their lifestyle enough to do anything about it. Right. So if you're one of the less fortunate people that has uh, one APOE4 and 30% chance you're going to get Alzheimer's, and that's actually 22% of the population, right? So nearly one in four people has a 30% chance of getting Alzheimer's just because of genetics, mm -hmm. unless you decide to take care of yourself and then the statistics that, don't count. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. So if you're a more unfortunate person and you have an APOE4 from both mom and dad, now that means you've got a 50% chance of developing uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, but that's only actually 2% of the population. Hmm. Right? So that's 1% in 50, right, has a 50% chance of, of actually developing this, assuming that they have never heard this podcast <laughs> and what we're going to get into in a minute. Another thing that is important about genetics is that we have uh, what are called SNPs or singular nucleotide polymorphisms or genes that just don't really do their job as well as they could. And if you went to get your genes tested through any of the standard testing services, it'll tell you which of those SNPs that you have. And if you have a whole bunch of them, and it's the same thing, you, know, you get one from your mom, one from your dad. If you get the same you know, negative SNP from both your mom and your dad, then that's going to be that much more of a pressure on your genetics to express illness. 
Right. Right. So there's a lot of other factors that you can either worry about or do something about depending on what kind of character you have, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and, and I mean, that, that's, that's, and I bring that up maybe to be a bit, I don't know, goofy, but, uh, that's the hardest part about genetic testing for people is we still have this sort of clutching fear that our genes have some secret evil, you know, plan for us. Well, that they have some, uh, they've all got little switches, you know, on or off. And as soon as you turn them on, there's no way that the switch is going to, you know, the switch breaks as soon as it turns on kind of thing. Not exactly. No? Nope. So, you know, those light switches that you kind of flick up and down. Yeah. And this light switches you can push on and turn. Sure. Think of the genes as the push on and turn. Hmm. Cause once you turn the gene on, you're right. You can't turn it off, but you can turn it down so far that there's no symptoms or progression of the disease. Right. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's what I was more alluding to that, that, uh, some people just think that if your genes turn on, then yeah. you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what this whole conversation is about is although there's probably like 50 different ways in which your genetics could be glitching out in a way that if you did nothing, you might be screwed. Um, the only reason we're having this conversation is that we can test for that now and give you a whole list of things to do so that you're the opposite of screwed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And you know, cause otherwise why would, why would, what would be the point of bringing up something? Yeah. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Doom and gloom. It's the new health podcast. Doom and gloom. Today on Casey Rask goodbye. <laughs> Dr. Michael Smith talks about (laughs) Alzheimer's disease. (laughs) And if you didn't remember listening to the podcast, listen again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a quick break here and let people know that uh, if they're enjoying the conversation, uh, you can support us to do this in a way that would help us do it in a bigger and better, probably more technologically uh, fantastic fashion. Uh, We do have a Patreon page, uh, Fusion Health Radio. Just search for us there on Patreon. It's an opportunity for you, a uh, loyal listener, to um, invest a little bit of money into whatever we're investing in uh, to support you to live a healthier, uh, happier, healthier, and uh, memory-intact kind of life. <laughs> Longer is good. Longer is good, yeah. Uh, actually, I was going to say, um, although we're kind of breezing through the some of the research and technical information that I have, uh, the actual presentation material that I am using to help support this podcast is actually from one of the preventing and reversing disease talks that we're doing once a month for specifically the Patreon, uh, uh, patrons, uh, for Fusion Health Radio radio. So, uh, just giving you guys a little, I don't know, peek around the corner of what, what, the, what little, the patrons get in every month. <laughs> that's right. A little, little incentive to, uh, uh, to, to look forward to, um, so where were we with the, the conversation? Understanding, um, I guess, uh, how at risk we are is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the disease itself, how it manifests. Is it, does, does it always progress down the same sort of road? Is it always, you know, somebody wandering down the street in their underwear with needles in their back? Does that always happen? Uh, no. I mean, again, with, with the progression of it, it depends on what stage you're at. You know, and if they have, say, five or six stages of actual classical deterioration, um, you know, in terms of symptoms and cognitive uh, capacity uh, and possibility of actually reversing and repairing, um, obviously gets worse with each stage you get into. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say of the six stages that we presently use for dementia, you could get into stage four and I think still reverse most of the, the damage. But when you start getting into the real severe stuff where you're, you know, 
symptoms are coming close to uh, including things that would be more like a Parkinson's diagnosis or something. Usually at a certain level of damage to the nervous system, it's really hard to bounce back. Right. But I mean, if you can get more than halfway into this and still dig your way out of it, it's good to know. Sure. Well, it, the, the thought just popped in my head that um, this is kind of a, uh, sorry, the process of being healthy or having, having a healthy brain is probably part and parcel of the process of being a, having a healthy everything, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that's nothing that we haven't talked about before, but is there anything specific that you want to talk to about in terms of, um, I guess, prevention or reversing? So y what I would usually go into, and because we only have an hour, I can't spend a whole hour on the next <laughs> five minutes, but what usually the next thing I ask people to take into to their awareness ar around Alzheimer's, especially with prevention, is the value of actually using some lab tests to look at your health, you know, in the sense of momentum. Across the board, general health lab testing, stuff that looks at, you know, metabolic health, uh, general effectiveness of detox pathways, uh, saliva testing to see if your sex hormones or stress hormones are literally running your immune system into into the ground because that's a, a big driver for a lot of problems. Um, if you have a leaky gut, you might have a leaky brain. That's going to very much speed up the... It's going to accelerate any kind of de deterioration or immune system reaction in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting those kind of tests, uh, there's a thing called SIBO, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is surprisingly common in, in people who have some symptoms. But, you know, it used to be, pe people used to wait until you were like, oh my God, it looks like you're really, really sick. I think you have SIBO. Now we're all going, you know what? I think within a year or two, you're probably going to be diagnosed with SIBO. So let's test you now. And SIBO being small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, usually because of the overuse of antibiotics or misuse or didn't repair ourselves after the use of antibiotics, now you have these weird gut ecologies that can basically explode highly corrosive, uh, almost like a gas, right? And it secretes that through your, your whole, um, once the secretions get going, it goes through your whole vascular system, causing all kinds of irritation and damage to your vascular system. And if it can get through the blood-brain barrier, now you've got this stuff called lipopolysaccharide, which is kind of like rocket fuel inside your brain. So, ow. Right. So not supposed to be there. Yeah, the other, the other one that comes to mind would be uh, oat testing. Sorry, say uh, that again? Organic acid testing. Okay, oat. Yep. So organic acids are things that tell us how specifically effective your carbohydrate, your protein, and your fat synthesis met metabolism work. But those organic acid tests also can test how effective your brain is at producing and clearing neurotransmitters. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, when you get, I don't know, if you get really, really deep into the... Uh, higher end of lab testing, you can actually test to see if your immune system is effectively attacking specific proteins uh, within your nervous system or your brain. But that that would only happen if you're already, you know, probably diagnosed with some kind of cognitive decline, and they just want to see how how far it's going. Hmm. But a super efficient thing to do because it's not just about oh, I better spend two hundred bucks to see you know whether or not I may someday get Alzheimer's. It's more like oh, maybe I should spend two hundred bucks and make sure I'm not going to get diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune disease, you know, cognitive decline in any way, um, you know, everything that's going wrong for people. <laughs> sure. So it, it's not just about preventing Alzheimer's. It's just saying, especially after about forty-five, I think we should all be given some kind of. I know, 
magic $5,000 from our healthcare provider saying, here, just take care of yourself. We don't want to spend $200,000, you know, in 10 years taking care of you. So, you know, go, go and do some real clear preventative testing and do a cleanse or something and, you know, stay on top of it all. When you talk about these different processes, I'm just aware that uh, just the very nature of the conversation we're having today might attract some people who might not necessarily know the first thing about functional medicine or that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, can you maybe talk to how, um, you know, the average listener might be able to uh, approach their, their medical professional or uh, even look to, to have spending that $5,000 you just talked about? Well, I don't know anybody who has $5,000 to do that. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing to say, but sure. I might suggest starting with two or 300 bucks. You know, okay. and, and just say, if you can find somebody who's doing uh, functional medicine, uh, functional diagnostic nutrition, other um, basically functional medicine services that are out there, um, you know, I would get a hold of someone like that. And there, there's a kind of a groundswell of medical doctors, chiropractors, naturopaths, doctors of Chinese medicine, even people that you might just call health coaches, who are all becoming certified to use functional medicine lab work because it's it's at the leading edge of what we can do as science now. Sure. And why wouldn't we all want to have somebody in our community that can help us access that and help us interpret it? I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to have 10 years of medical training to make sense of some fairly basic uh, metabolic uh, uh, results. Because, I mean, when, when you think of a, a lab test as a diagnostic thing, and there are lab tests that are specifically diagnostic in that way, you're basically looking for a yes or no answer. But I would say the vast majority of tests aren't meant to be diagnostic. They're meant to be um, kind of like a, uh, if you were to take a picture of something, you know, kind of from the sky. You know, this is just a big picture view of what's going on with your whole metabolism in, in whatever way that test is focused. And you can take that information instead of as a diagnosis and go, well, if everything's tilting in this direction, you know, and, and seems to been going on, you know, in that direction for that far, that fast, now I know how much I need to do to turn it around. And, and that, that's a huge thing for all of us. And, and I, I can empathize that a lot of people would naturally be a bit nervous about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm going to give some person, you know, a few hundred bucks and they're going to, you know, get all these tests done. And then, uh, you know, what's going to happen now? You know, and that's a big apprehensive thing is what if it turns out there's something really wrong? Well, I would think that um, the whole nature of the reason why you're asking in the first place is because there is actually something you can do about it. I, I know. And that that's sort of the weird thing about this is a lot of us, and, and I'm sorry if that snuck up on people in a way that seems rude, but sometimes that's how I get people's attention, <laughs> you know, is this sort of like to trip people. Because if you're actually afraid of finding out what might be bad, because it might actually have, like you now you're going to have to take your health seriously. Notice the conversation is that you're still sitting there petulantly like a teenager hoping to get away with not taking your health seriously. Right. And I'm not saying that with judgment. I'm, that's just, you know, it's like saying, hey, look, there's a cat. It looks like a cat, smells like a cat, meows like a cat. It's a cat. <laughs> Right beside that duck. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've had times in my life when I've been just as petulant and adolescent as any other person I've ever known. So I'm not being a judgmental twit. I'm just saying, I know what it likes, what it's like to be a cat. Hmm. I know what it's like to not be a cat. I don't recommend being a cat. <laughs> well, it, 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 I think that speaks to the bigger picture of whatever it is we're doing with the podcast. In some way, I think that um, the brave person who's actually tuning into this geeking out with uh, all the things we talk about is actually somebody who is a person of influence, at least I would hope so, mm -hmm. um, and that they would, you know, 
find some gentle uh, Dale Carnegie uh, kind of way <laughs> to uh, inspire someone to do something uh, better for their health. At least that's my wish anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very likelihood most people listening to this are proactive enough to be going out of their way to learn more things about, you know, health and wellness and everything. So wasn't trying to spank everybody. Yeah. But at the same time, I really just want people to notice that in ourselves, notice that in the people around us and find a way to address it that isn't mean. Because mm-hmm. mean makes that part of us run away. And then it just takes longer to get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> hey, honey, I just found this podcast. It's great. There's like 50 odd episodes. The guys are awesome. You need to listen to this. <clears throat> <laughs> Something like that, right? Okay. <laughs> um. And so, it's, it's so, called Fusion Health Radio. <laughs> so where we were talking about it was just, you know, the, the practical wisdom of if you're going to invest some more time and energy into your health, um, yeah, go, go and get some very broad metabolic tests done just to see where your metabolism's at. Or, and that just popped into my head, I'm going to plug my cleanse uh, just because it's coming up. And I think we had talked about that uh, in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um so it starts the 21st of March, 2018, although people can sign up for another two weeks. So basically into the first week of April, it's two hours every Wednesday night. Uh, if you want to do it live, it's, um, 10 weeks long. And, uh, if you don't want to be, uh, on the, the webinar live, you get an HD recording usually the next day or sometimes the day after that, just depending because uploading two hours of HD video takes almost. 24 hours to do. Sure. Um, so that's, that's coming up and it's 350 bucks and you get a consult with me and you get two books. So it's a pretty good deal, I think, uh, in the sense of 20 hours of what and how your body works, what can go wrong, what you should do about it. There's questionnaires you can take to, just to make sure you're being very accurate with where your focus is during that whole process. But if you're trying to think of like, if I had some extra money and I wanted to make the most, uh, profitable investment, uh, in my health, I would honestly say, take that course. And it's not just because I teach it and I get some money for teaching it. It's cause I, I've been teaching that course almost 20 years. And I think that course should have been taught in high school. Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, uh, isn't it convenient? This is the time of the year when people start getting antsy to, you know, yeah. uh, bust out of their cabin fever and do some kind of spring cleaning. So yep. well, I think it, 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 it totally works that way. And, and certainly the, the last podcast we had, uh, was focused on the whole idea of cleansing and such. And, uh, that if anything would, um, perhaps, uh, strengthen the, uh, resolve that someone has to actually want to uh, take care of themselves mm-hmm. instead of reading all those Dale Carnegie books. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the next thing I want to talk to quickly about, uh, if we have time is the more, more practical, like how to prevent and reverse this day to day. Sure. You know, down here on the ground. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, nuts and bolts of, uh, uh, what we can actually do. So yep. go, go nuts and bolts. So water, drink lots of water, make sure you drink enough water in the morning to trigger, uh, a very innate epigenetic process that we've had in our species since we came out of the jungle. Um, very quickly, you know, think of humans as primarily scavengers, you know, and migratory for 90% of our evolutionary past. Carrying water around is a really bummer thing to try and do in nature without technology. So, uh, it's been the natural habit of our species for millions of years to drink most of our water in the morning and then wander off to find water somewhere else later in the day. Cause it's just so hard to carry and it's noisy and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it, it's what we call an epigenetic reset. 
where you're actually reminding your body of something that it has a very deep, uh, you know, genetic memory of doing. So by making sure you're really like at least a leader in the first two hours every day, mm -hmm. if you can do that, that's like an absolutely huge thing. And, and anyone I've ever done got to do that, who's actually done it within a couple of weeks. I mean, there's always gonna be the complaining about I have to pee lots for a while and you know, your, your body has to adapt to that. But everyone who you know actually does it comes back and says, I can't believe how much that's changed, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say that I think that that's, uh, as much as we're talking about uh, things that uh, would uh, work to reverse Alzheimer's disease, I think these are kind of, um, this is the, the, drinking the water isn't, in the course of this podcast, you have mentioned drinking water as a good thing to do for a bunch of different things. Yep. So uh, if not for just this, today's topic, it would be good for uh, a good all around tonic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, what else? So the thing that's uh, really quite challenging for most people nowadays is that um, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is we've spent the last 60 years basically being afraid of fat. Afraid of the food stuff fat or the stuff that hangs out around my midsection fat? Uh, I think we actually have the belief that they're somehow related to each other. Right. Right. Which is why I asked that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because we've, and, and, I mean, there's what's called correlative association between the fact that 60 years ago we stopped eating fat because, you know, some dumbass decided to try and prove that it was the cause of cholesterol problems and heart disease, which no one's ever been able to prove that. Right. Um, but anyway, so there's a lot of people who think, you know, one of the main reasons why Alzheimer's is exploding all over the Western world right now is because we stopped eating fat because your brain's 60% fat and 25% cholesterol. So if you want a low cholesterol, low fat diet, you're going to be on a low brain diet. On the high raisin diet. Yeah. <laughs> Me want raisin now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, you're suggesting uh, good fats, of course. Yeah. So when you're looking at diet... Um, in, in general, more fat is, is important. So I'm going to kind of walk through a little palette of dietary ideas. Um, obviously, if inflammation is going to use up all your anti-inflammatory fats and neurotransmitters uh, in the sense of progression of Alzheimer's and dementia, an anti-inflammatory diet would be a really basically good way to start. It's not that hard in the sense of, oh my God, I'm not allowed to have anything. It's just getting rid of barbecued food and really corrosive crap mm -hmm. right? in the sense of huge obvious triggers the next diet that i would suggest people consider if they want to be a little bit more uh, thorough uh, would be what is called a gaps diet g-a-p-s and that stands for gut and psychology and its primary focus is on rebuilding the machinery of your microbiome in your gut because that machinery or all those little critters down there they make approximately 90 percent 95 percent of your serotonin about 60 percent of your melatonin so in the sense of how neurotransmitters work, happy gut, happy brain. Mm -hmm. uh, the GAP side is also pretty focused on reducing inflammation, immune system overreactions, and supporting neural tissue in, inside your brain. Uh, next to that, I would say, would be an autoimmune diet. It's just a bit more restrictive, a bit more nutrient-dense. And if your focus, again, is on high-fat uh, choices, then you've gotten rid of everything that's going to make you feel worse and make your immune system more of a problem. And you're eating everything that repairs everything. So that's a good way to go, but it's a pretty restrictive diet. You know, it's hard, hard to do for people, uh, at least for any big length of time. And then the next one I would say would be like the one that would be the most serious, you know, 
So if you're your, I know your uncle Bob has Alzheimer's and you want to be careful, do the anti-inflammatory thing. If your mom may be going into dementia, then definitely you want to be on the GAPS diet. If your whole family has autoimmune stuff and Alzheimer's is in, in the room of possibilities or not, the autoimmune diet is obviously the choice because it's about autoimmune dysfunction. And most people who study Alzheimer's absolutely say Alzheimer's is an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. um, the big diet, though, is called the ketogenic diet. Right. So uh, just for the sake of our listeners real quick, ketogenic diet is something... Basically a diet where you're 60, 75, up to 80% of your daily calories is from fat. As opposed to... Anything else. Right. Well, I was going to say, as opposed to the way most people eat, where it's probably from a bowl of pasta and a sandwich. Yeah, I think most people's diets are about 25, 30% fat. Hmm. Right. And we, we do best around 50 to 60. Right. And um, what would a ketogenic meal look like? <laughs> So I, I've done the ketogenic diet twice, and as okay. a gourmet cook, sort of foodie snob person, it, it's it's like going to a Vipassana retreat, because food is just, I have an avocado, I have some sausage, okay, I have some big lump of, you know, coconut oil mixed in with some coconut flakes and some cacao powder and something else just to make it chewable, you know, because <laughs> basically you just have to like eat as much fat as you can. I mean, the standard thing um, you would see online is people just mowing down on, you know, a, a giant feast of poached eggs and bacon or something. Wow. But if you can't eat eggs because you have an autoimmune thing and bacon seems like a bad resource for most of your calories, <laughs> intent, <laughs> um, you're going to have to get a little bit more creative. Right. Yeah. But yeah, the ketogenic diet is, is definitely tricky. Maybe that's a um, topic for another podcast. Yeah, I think we, we should definitely take the whole ketogenic diet apart as a podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that that's covering the basis of food. Drink lots of water. Uh, you definitely want to be uh, eating any one of those diets, depending on where you feel like um, preventing and or reversing any kind of dysfunction in, in your health needs, needs to be addressed. So um, please dive in that way. Supplements? Uh, supplements. So anything that's immune regulating, you know, vitamin D3 is one of our, you know, lovely champions. Um, we talked about low dose naltrexone a couple of episodes ago. Mm -hmm. That's a profoundly, uh, preventative thing for both Alzheimer's and cancer and autoimmune disease. And it regulates the immune system. So even if you already are diagnosed and dealing with some process of autoimmunity inflammation or even Alzheimer's, the LDN will diminish that hugely. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBD from cannabis, that honestly should be in the water supply, <laughs> you know, in the sense it doesn't make people high, but it's so neuroprotective. I mean, I mean, if you can take a four-year-old kid having a severe seizure and get the CBD into their bloodstream, which takes a little while, but once that's in there, all of the immune reactive inflammatory swelling trigger forces inside the brain that produce seizures go away, like mm. go away. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I would say that's a, a really good idea. There's a recipe on my website for something called golden milk. It's a really, really potent uh, plant-based anti-inflammatory. Then there's all the nootropics, uh, which are supplements that are known to improve cognition and memory and other stuff. The one that's the most associated with uh, Alzheimer's is lion's mane. It's a kind of fungus that's actually been clinically proven uh, I think the clinical trials were specific to Parkinson's, but uh, it's a very similar part of the, the brain's degeneration that you're looking at. 
I mean, I, I could probably just stand here and wait to see whatever the next thing that pops up. Cause I mean, yeah, B12, of course, B5 and six, of course, vitamin C, of course. So <laughs> I should start a supplement company. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. But, but there's, there's lots and lots and lots of that, but not to, uh, I don't know, not to overwhelm people with like all the things you need to do right now. Try not to see it that way. Try and just give yourself permission to say, maybe what I'll do is go and find some of those sort of free self-assessment questionnaires online that I can look into. And um, I'm actually going to take all the questionnaires from my cleanse course and put that into a, what do they call it, a database kind of thing. A friend of mine who's a computer person says a lot of people would love it to be able to go online and just, you know, through it's a very efficient way of making all those questions kind of become the least number of questions, but a person could go through that and just tick off a bunch of boxes and then be given like a proportionate response. Like, you know, 72% of your symptoms have to do with H pylori and, mm -hmm. you know, it, but it gives people at least the beginning of, of some self quantification and assessment in that way. But there's lots of that stuff out there online already. So if you were to go out and just do some self assessment, that might give you some sense of more, uh, practical ways to focus on your health right now. Sure. You know, or take my cleanse. You got a free consult with me. We'll figure it out. <laughs> um, I'm curious. I mean, this is the uh, health lifestyle and mindset podcast. I mean, certainly we could talk about supplementation until uh, we make another podcast of the whole thing mm -hmm. uh, and diet. Um, is there any kind of, um, I don't know, meditative practice or some other sort of, uh, not, not that I usually use this word to describe what you know, but woo-woo kind of thing that would actually <laughs> help people around? Oh, I, I, I mean... Yeah, I'd, I'd have to put my screen share back on to go through all of the woo-woo stuff that I do at the the bigger seminars with this stuff. But um, meditation, absolutely. And there's a lot of different kinds of meditation. I have a course coming up, and it's called Applied Meditation. So if you're a person who doesn't like sitting and just being bored, then seated meditation is probably not going to be for you. And that's why Applied Meditation practices are, I find so much more engaging because it isn't just sit, wait, and shut up. It's apply consciousness to shifting something. And th that's very much like when people say, if you want to try and prevent a cognitive decline, maybe you should do a crossword puzzle every day because hmm. now you're applying the neural pathways of association and memory and, you know, spatial reasoning and stuff like that. So anything you can do that really uses your brain like a race car, I think is going to be better for you than just, you know, sitting there watching your belly button. Although, Having said that, something like a sensory deprivation tank uh, and or even going to meditation retreats once in a while where you are just going to sit down and shut up. Because if you're going to do that, honestly, it's more of a four or five hour thing. <clears throat> so if you want to get the, the big benefit of, of deep, quiet kind of repose in the, in the sense of the classic sit and be quiet meditation, in order to get the neurological kind of big bump you want, you'd have to sit still for about four or five hours. Hmm. Right. Right. Uh, fasting, really, really good idea. Um, certain kinds of exercise also really, really good idea because both fasting and high intensity interval kind of exercise and certain kinds of swimming and other things like that, they all upregulate uh, a hormone in your brain called BDNF or brain derived neurotropic factor, which is a fancy way of saying make brain grow. And, uh, give brain chance to clear out garbage. Yeah. And uh, if people are really wanting to go into way, way more detail on this in terms of the geek out, uh, no, I'll definitely try and find that guy's name. It's Barrett's and Benner's and something. Put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, when you get into his book, his whole thesis, and you really 
probably would need to be a clinician to get the happy dance out of this. He's basically proving that the amyloid placking thing that we have seen as a big part of Alzheimer's is actually a normal defense mechanism of the brain. Hmm. And like all other autoimmune conditions, there's a glitch that happens where the placking actually becomes more of a problem than a way of isolating, gathering, and then clearing tissue waste out of the brain. So just to say like there's, we're, we're so close in, in some ways to really, really getting a sense of what this really is, but we don't really know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you, as you go through the list of, uh, of things for people to do, it just makes me think of, oh yeah, we've talked about that in this podcast. We've talked about that in this podcast and it just, you know, um, I think the whole idea of preventing is kind of what we've been talking about up until this point. Right. Yeah. You know, and obviously I, I might just sort of flip back to supplements. The worst symptoms are going to be driven by the most aggressive part of whatever kind of Alzheimer's you're going to have, if you're going to have it. So that's going to change what symptoms might be the best thing from, I don't know, CoQ10 to Ginkgo biloba to, you know, whatever else that might be specific for, for something. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and you, you can get into crazy amounts of detail with it. My hope, though is in having this conversation uh, with you and you know everybody else who's had a chance to to follow along is that we can take one big step back and go okay this is actually potentially going to stall our economy uh that's a pretty big statement how do you mean uh, again so if we don't change anything in 20 years 30 percent of our population is going to be dedicated to people who can't figure out right where their poo goes so, I mean, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but I mean, if, if that's where we decide to go and we get that passive and that much of our economy gets caught up in it, we're going to become the first part of the world who just says euthanasia is no longer voluntary. If you're this sick, you're just going to get, wow. You know, cause I mean, and again, that's, I didn't want to start the whole conversation off with when I was doing that research 20 years ago and back then it would have been 30 years, 40 years. Uh, that was the consensus of all the people in the year 2000 was that if we can't change this, and again, back then it would have been 40 years, um, it will stall the economy. Wow. That's pretty, uh, so that's, that's one thing I just want people to, to hear is like, don't be passive about this. This is something that's very, very sneaky. And once you get pretty far into it, if you do, where are you really going to be in a position at that point, neurologically, emotionally, psychologically, to be the person who's the go-to warrior, who's going to solve that problem? Please don't wait. Mm -hmm. Right? Do not wait. Go and take some basic questionnaires, go and do what's called a VCS test, a visual contrast sensitivity test. You can do it for, I think, 25 bucks online. Check out your brain, make sure it's working, you know. And even if you're not concerned about you know, dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, which would be awesome if you have no reason to be concerned about it, um, please tell your friends that maybe not having the same genes you do, you know, to, to not be lazy about this. And it is completely preventable and reversible for most people. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's just deciding, oh yeah, I, I like having a brain. Well, to use uh, a word that I've heard you, or a phrase that I've heard you say a bunch of times before, this is a very big dashboard light. Yeah. Uh, the idea of uh, Alzheimer's being that uh, prevalent in our society, that worrisome about our future. Um, I mean, if that's not a wake up call to actually want to take better care of your overall health, I don't know what is. Um, and it's, uh, encouraging that, um, the, the ideas that we've been sharing, um, are sort of pointed in that direction anyways. 
So I'm going to just say what I was going to say in a completely different way. Clearly, I can comfortably sit here and sound very scary. Oh my God, this could be a crisis. Eek. And you know, in a certain way, that's all. That's as true as it is. But look at this in another way. So let's say in the next 20 years, we have uh, magically pull out the number of 24 really unique medical breakthroughs in terms of joint replacement, in terms of organ transplant, in terms of a whole bunch of other stuff. Because it's coming to pass that the more we focus on preventative care, integrative models of medicine, you know, that aren't just about symptom suppression and surgery and stuff like that, the more we're seeing the possibility that, you know, we started the conversation off uh, with, you know, from 45 to 80, you should be able to have the same health and, you know, functionality and stuff. Mm -hmm. What happens if that goes up to 120? Now that we, if we have 20 years of really cool, you know, science fiction medical breakthroughs, and now we can live to 120 and, and have relatively good physical, you know, health and mobility. But if your brain's a raisin, well, that's going to be a long ass 120. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm, I'm saying that kind of in a, in a parable like manner, like I'm making up a little future story for people to think about because it could go either way. I mean, we could be the worst, uh, you know, what do they call that? The, uh, the least helpful angels that we have, you know, if we follow that down the road of passivity, you know, we could literally end up with a stalled economy and a bunch of people doing their best to clean each other's, you know, everybody's grandparents' diapers and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Or, or we can envision a future where, uh, you know, some combination of text, uh, technology and deep human insight on the value of your health and your, your autonomy as a being directs us towards a very different future where we again could live to 120 and be really fit and happy and healthy and, you know, on top of our game mentally, mm-hmm. but that's only going to happen if we take care of ourselves. You're, you're listening to Fusion Health Radio, episode 4,392,000. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember all of them. And the, your uh, voice box is the uh, batteries are low. You should put in a new implant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, I feel like a million bucks now. <laughs> God, the modern, modern marvels of science and medicine. Um, yeah. Wow, this has been a very uh, eye-opening podcast, uh, to say the least. Um, pay attention to your health, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 48, pay attention to your health, damn it. Um, <laughs> What, what, do you, what do you think? Should we change the name? <laughs> Maybe uh, we should just like film random podcasts and come up with a name at the end of the podcast because, you know, yeah. it seems to almost happen that way. Yeah, exactly. Well, we got to put all the Easter eggs at the end of the podcast to get people to listen through, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there anything more that you wanted to share around this? I think it, this has been, a, like I said, a, a very um, uh, sternly worded uh, warning and uh, invitation at the same time for people to pay attention to their health, uh, specifically around Alzheimer's. Can, can I? Yeah. Magic mushrooms. Well, there's a different podcast. <laughs> Magic mushrooms, psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. And psilocybin is the, uh, what the active ingredient I think in magic mushrooms. Uh, there's a few, uh, getting into the chemistry of all that stuff. I, I would really want to do some, review to make sure I had that at the top of my mind. It's not something I do a lot of speaking on, mm. but I would be really, it would be fun to do a podcast on all the entheogenic medicines uh, or spirit molecules or the shamanic 
you know, plants that are out there. Yeah. But uh, magic mushrooms is definitely one of the things that's uh, associated with profound uh, rewiring and very positive uh, uh, hormonal changes in the brain. So, wow. well, that's. Uh... But, but that's at a really small dose. Yeah, of course. By, by the way, just for people who are like, woohoo, I'm going to go off on. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, I got a whole bag. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that kind of stuff should be done, you know, where the the actual thing is measured down to the exact number of milligrams you're taking because you're doing it as a specific kind of, you know, medical procedure to change your brain's metabolism. But, um, yeah, there's all kinds of really cool research on uh, a lot of those plants and, and their ability to profoundly help uh, with neuroplasticity. Hmm. Well, it sounds to me like... Uh as much as we're at the uh, the top end of the podcast here, that there's a lot more that we could say about that. Uh, but I'm going to invite our listeners to uh, uh, reach out and ask us those questions themselves instead of me doing it. Mm -hmm. um, reach out through Facebook. Uh, look for Fusion Health Radio there and uh, let Michael know uh, what you know or maybe even a story that you want to share around your, your own experience around Alzheimer's. It would be great to um, learn more uh, that way and share that with other folks as a form of uh, learning and understanding. Um yeah, and I, again, I'm just really uh, enthusiastic that uh, we're kind of on a track here to uh, prevent Alzheimer's throughout the whole course of the podcast, not necessarily just this one. So, uh, good job, Mister. Thanks. <laughs> we should do a podcast. <laughs> uh, this has been Fusion Health Radio, episode forty-eight: Preventing and Reversing Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Anthony Sana in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, stay tuned for our next show. Do you know what we're going to talk about next time, Michael? Uh, there's four or five ones that are crowding around the door to come in. I'm just waiting to see if I have a specific inspiration. Okay. Um, I'm sure it'll be good. Yeah. But the idea of talking about entheogenic plants sounds really fun. Okay. There you go. <laughs> what your appetite there, uh, dear listener. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Please do um, comment on Facebook. Uh, share this with your friends. Um, consider uh, becoming a patron on Patreon of Fusion Health Radio. Uh, we'd love to have your financial support to make this bigger and better. And um, I guess that's all we have time for today. Uh, yeah, and please, if you have a question or a topic you want us to dive into, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Uh, good conversation today, Michael. Thank you. Thanks. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.